Hi, this is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of having two of our very, very popular guests, uh, Dr. Uh, Rob Coleman, who is the Chief Scientific Officer at uh, U.S. Oncology and also the President of IGCS. Uh, and then also Professor Dr. Shannon Weston, uh, who is uh, a professor in the Department of uh, Gynecologic Oncology and Reproductive Medicine at our MD Anderson Cancer Center. Um, very, very timely topic. Um, obviously, there has been some news regarding this topic as it pertains to um, the use of PARP inhibitors. And uh, we're going to talk about the current updates on overall survival and survival outcomes in, uh, with PARP inhibitors. So, uh, Shannon and, and Rob, welcome to the podcast once again. Thanks Thank you. Us. It's great to be with us. Be with you. Uh, so um, I want to start with uh, Shannon and, and certainly <clears throat> would love to hear uh, both of your inputs on, on any of the questions that I, that I asked today. But Shannon, I was wondering if you can start by just kind of providing an outline of where we stand today in terms of accepted indications for PARP inhibitors in, in the upfront maintenance setting. And in the recurrent setting, and I know it's a question that the answer could be about forty-five minutes long. Yeah. Fifty slides to share with Yeah, you right it'll now. it'll just be it'll just be a quick hour-long talk, no problem. And then we can get to the second question. No, um, I'll I'll keep it I'll keep it brief. No, I think that the important thing for the listeners to know, and just to make sure, kind of we're all on the same page before we start discussing, is that we've got indications in frontline and we've got indications in second line. For frontline, our indications are um, Olaparib alone as a single agent for patients with BRCA mutations that can be germline or somatic at the completion of chemotherapy, so frontline maintenance. You also, if you've started your patient on bevacizumab or if you use bevacizumab, you also have the option to add Olaparib to bevacizumab as a maintenance strategy for patients that either, again, have a BRCA mutation or have um, positive homologous or combination deficiency testing. And then finally, we also have an all-comers approval for Neuraparib for any patient in frontline maintenance, regardless of biomarker, although as we've seen previously, with a biomarker, you have better outcomes, right? In second line, we also have all three PARP inhibitors, recaparib, olaparib, and niraparib have a um, an indication for maintenance. So you've completed your chemotherapy and now you can transition to a maintenance strategy. And then finally, all three have a treatment indication, right? So olaparib in patients with BRCA mutations, three or more lines of therapy, um, the uh, rucaparib in two or more lines of therapy, although that has been, they've advised not to use it right now based on what we're going to talk about in, um, in over the next couple of minutes. And then finally, niraparib um, has an indication as well. So that's kind of the lay of the land. What we're seeing, of course, is as we start giving PARPs earlier, probably going to have less use later because the utility of PARP after PARP is unclear. Well, I have to say, fantastic job in summarizing all of that literature uh, within just a one or two minute uh, statement. So um, really great uh, overview as well. So obviously now getting on to the, to the topic of, of this discussion, you know, up until now, a lot of the data have been very uh, uh, enthusiastic with regards to the outcomes and, and a lot of it was focusing on disease-free survival, um, not so much on the overall survival. Um, I was wondering if, if either one of you or both of you can mm -hmm. just give us an update on your thoughts with regards to, to this point. 
Yeah, I'll start if you if you don't mind. Um, so the you know the whole the as, as everybody knows the uh, the process for regulatory approval in the United States does um, uh, re requires that after um, uh, approval that there be strictly for accelerated approval that there be post marketing commitment to evaluation of the of their drugs as they perform. Uh, uh, both inside of clinical trials and outside of clinical trials. And so in the context of uh, Rucaparib, uh, as Shannon mentioned, uh, there was a post-marketing commitment to conduct a trial uh, as a treatment uh, indication um, in, a, in a slightly different line of therapy and, and with respect to a different patient population, uh, in this case being platinum, potentially platinum-resistant type of patients. And that was the Aerial 4 trial. Uh, and so the kind of the outcome of that trial uh, that we saw and was published earlier this year um, it, it essentially showed that the PARP inhibitor was, um, you know, demonstrated some improvement over uh, chemotherapy choices. And, but as part of that commitment uh, was to follow those patients for a long-term outcome and overall survival. Similarly, uh, for Neraprib, uh, in following the NOVA trial, there was immaturity at the initial report. Uh, and so they had made a commitment to um, uh, to provide updated data on overall maturity uh, uh, or overall survival with maturity of that data set. Uh, and so uh, we saw that also mature. And so both of these trials basically provided, in some respects, a, a, an unexpected outcome. Um, and in both cases, uh, there was you know, evaluation by the IDMC to evaluate these these outcomes, and 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 um, what you'll what you see is that the the data that came from this suggested that there needed to be some alert to clinicians through uh, healthcare uh, provider uh, documents, um, and uh, that's what kind of hit the hit the uh, the the uh, us and, and the media uh, to uh, to evaluate this, and it's raised a lot of questions, just as you mentioned, and that's why we're here. To discuss, you know, what the impact of these um, these reports have on on the use of these drugs. Yeah, fantastic, uh, Shannon. Anything else you want to add to that? Well, I mean, I think we could get into a little bit of the details of of what's what we know so far based on the press release um, that came out around Aerial Four. And and as Rob mentioned, we did see an improvement in progression free survival, but but these data were updating the overall survival. Now, you know, we caution against this and I, and Rob could, could talk about this, I think in more detail, but we've, we've established that PFS is the appropriate endpoint for ovarian cancer. And that often OS is not reflective of those treatments that give us benefit, right? Because there's crossover and all sorts of things that can happen, um, happen later that, that don't make that an ideal endpoint, but be that as it may, what they found was there was a detriment in um, overall survival for those patients that received Rucaparib as compared to chemotherapy, and it actually was a hazard ratio of 1.55, so increased about 55% chance increase of death. Now, when they teased it out, and as Rob mentioned previously, we know that platinum sensitivity is where it's at for PARP inhibitors, right? That is one of our best clinical indications that PARP will provide benefit to our patients outside of bio biomarker. And they included platinum sensitive, but they also included a large proportion of patients with platinum resistant disease. And when you start to look at the hazard ratios and you start to look at the overall survival between the different groups, you can see that the platinum resistant group is driving the poor outcome, right? Mm -hmm. So those patients with platinum resistant disease have more of a detriment 
or, or is associated with more of a detriment in, in the PARP inhibitor group. So it makes it really hard, right? Because we don't have the, this isn't an analytic endpoint. We don't have the power to really look at this. And mm. now we're making big statements and making kind of big decisions around something that wasn't intended to do that, right? So I think part of it is the population. And this is all, these are all data that you can see in the press release. Rob and I, you know, both, you know, have access to a lot of different data, but this, these are all things that you can see in the press release where the hazard ratio for overall survival in the platinum resistant group is 1.72. Okay. Whereas the, the hazard ratio for in the other two platinum sensitive groups is 1.12, 1.15. That's more within the realm. That's not necessarily confirmatory that, oh yeah, there's a detriment. It's that high 1.5, 1.7 that really, you know, raise, raise our eyebrows around overall survival. And so you can see that it really seems to be that platinum resistant group that's driving that outcome that we see. Yeah, yeah and I think, go, go ahead. I'm sorry, Ron. As I say, you know, one thing to remember here too is that in, in the aerial force study design, you know, this was a two to one randomization of BRCA of uh, 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 patients with tumors that have um, uh, a BRCA mutation, um, and in the in the standard of care arm, there was an optional crossover. So even if you analyze overall survival, 64% of the patients who actually got randomized to physician's choice standard of care, both platinum sensitive and platinum resistant, both of those cohorts had the option to transfer to cross over to uh, a PARP inhibitor afterwards. And it was 64% of the patient population. So already tells you how confounded the data are when you think about what happened in the next line of therapy after that mm -hmm. and the farther, you know, and, and the subsequent lines of therapy. So once we lose control of what patients are actually getting, we start to confound how you interpret overall survival. Yeah, and I, and I think you, you brought up uh, an excellent point uh, with regards to the, the intent of the studies and how the information is perceived and read after this information is revealed. Because as you mentioned, you know, studies are designed to answer a specific question, but you, obviously invariably have data to answer other potential questions, but those were not the intent of the study. And then therefore, then uh, it's how much weight do you put into that additional secondary information that comes from, from the studies. Um, and and uh, I'll, I'll direct this to, to Shannon, just to, um, for, for those who may not be familiar with this press release or this information, um, can you just specify as to like, which studies did we get this information from? Because some people may say, whoa, is this the same for like now every PARP inhibitor or the, what, 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 what happened here? Yeah. Uh, so if you could just specify as to like, what are we talking about specifically uh, with regards to the studies that came out? Yeah, great point. So the 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 press release for Rucaparib was based on the Aerial 4 study, which as Rob mentioned, is the randomized study between PARP as a treatment as compared versus chemotherapy. Okay, so that's where this particular press release came. And they made mention of their aerial three study, which is the uh, second line maintenance that this was not, there was, they were looking at those data, but those data were not available. So that that's the root cap rib. We've also had a recent um, Dear Doctor letter from uh, from Neraprib, from, from GSK, from Neraprib around overall survival data from NOVA. So NOVA, again, is the second line maintenance all-comers study for neraparib. And similar to what 
they saw an aerial four, it does seem that there's um, a potential detriment in overall survival. But what's really nice about the NOVA study is it it's really two separate studies. We had the BRCA study and we have the non-BRCA study. And in looking at the, the BRCA study, there does not appear to be a survival de detriment, okay? When you tease out the population that has homologous recombination deficiency test negative, that's the group that doesn't seem to do as well. And we kind of already knew that, right? So, so, it, and, and so, you know, we're getting as a, a, a starting to get a little bit of a clear picture around utilizing the biomarkers, whether they're clinical biomarkers like platinum sensitivity or actual biomarkers like BRCI and homologous recombination deficiency testing that potentially it's not really a great thing to do PARP for all. We really have to be smart about who we pick, right? The other thing I would just make mention of is we've seen overall survival data from SOLO2, right? Those data have been presented and there was a trend towards improved survival for patients with a BRCA mutation that got second line maintenance. So just to throw another bit of confusion in there. But again, this is a very, this is a population that is very platinum sensitive, had a biomarker, right? So, um, so I think that, you know, it, it reflects exactly what Rob was saying, where we're not powered to do these analyses. They're, they're informative. They're giving us information, but to say, oh no, we're not going to give PARP to anybody anymore because of this would be a really, really bad choice. Right. So, so we know that, um, that we get improvement in progression-free survival. We know that upfront, it seems like is where we're going to get our best benefit. Right. So to me, what this says to me is, wow, I really want to make sure I'm using my PARP inhibitors upfront for the right patients. Right. Yeah. Because it's going to get a little messy as, as we get into later lines of therapy. And, and, and Peter, if I might, if I can, I'd like to put a little bit of a plug in here because it, at, at the IGCS meeting, we're going to be presenting the overall survival data for aerial three. So just mm. as you've seen how with overall survival for Nova, we're going to present it from Arial 3. But let me, let, me, let me provide a little bit more context as to why this is so confusing. If you remember, all three of those trials that, um, that Shannon mentioned, uh, study 19, uh, Solo 2, the, uh, 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 the Nova trial, and Arial 3, all of those trials basically showed that there was a substantial improvement in progression-free survival with the patients who got PARP. So what did that do to the, quote, platinum-free interval in the patients who ultimately recurred while they were taking a platinum, while they were taking their maintenance therapy? Well, we know that it was about three to four times longer in the patients getting PARP than it was in placebo. So their platinum-free interval for the next line of therapy is going to be influenced hmm. by that impact of prior therapy. So what we're going to do in this aerial three study, which I, I won't re relieve right now, is we actually broke that down into the kind of the platinum free interval for the second line of therapy, because there is an overwhelming higher degree of use of retreating with, with platinum in patients who had a PARP inhibitor than those that didn't, as you would expect, because their platinum free interval while they were taking a PARP inhibitor is much longer. So you can see right there, just on that one factor, it's going to alter what we as clinicians will do when we see these patients. So it's not a, we don't control for all those. And so the bottom line is, as you mentioned, is that we, since we don't have the power to assess this, these are hypothesis generating <laughs> concepts. 
And that's what causes most of us to, you know, the hair on the back of our head to, uh, to raise when we start making conclusions about the use or non-use of agents based on an endpoint that we can't control for and have not uh, analytically assessed. Well, that's really great. And I'm glad you, uh, you um, uh, brought it up. And, and I think it obviously brings up some really, really important points. And then uh, I appreciate the plug. We'll be there at IGCS. And we hope that <laughs> everyone listening will be at the IGCS meeting end of September in New York City. Uh, we hope to see you there. Uh, but let me ask you, I mean, there, there are some who have said, well, look, you know, this data that shows a detriment from PARP inhibitor it's just because the people analyzing the data don't know how to analyze data. <laughs> so therefore, that's not true. Um, and then my people. question to you is, what if, it, what, what if, if there is a, an actual detriment, what's the reason? Why would you propose there might be a reason? I mean, there's there's a couple of thoughts. We've seen some data come out about response to platinum after PARP, right? So potentially if if patients could have benefited from, from platinum, maybe you're seeing worse, uh, worse benefit, worse, worse response, worse PFS after that. I don't know. It's it's a little bit hard for, for that for me, you know, because I think that as we, you know. To withhold something from somebody for the potential of a different treatment, it just to mm -hmm. me it just doesn't make sense. I I have a hard time. I I can't explain it out loud to the patient, so I I feel like it's not the right thing to do. But I I do think that mechanistically that may be. Um, I I don't know, and I think the other the other thing that I've I've thought about a little bit is for the patients with um either platinum resistant disease or platinum sensitive, you know, if, if they get chemo and they progress very quickly. And then they go on to the PARP after, like Rob was saying, if they if they you know cross over and and they get benefit, then potentially their survival's longer, right? Because they had that intervening um, other therapy. And I'm you know I'm just I've been brainstorming about this, and I I definitely want to yeah. hear what Rob has to say. But I wonder if there's something about the way that the 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 therapies were sequenced that you, you see an an um, an erroneous increase in overall survival because you've put something out, you know, some other treatment for you know three months or something mm -hmm. in, in that in that patient's queue. I, I'm not sure. So yeah, and I think it's think I think I agree with you completely. I think that the um, a couple ways to look at this is that, um, and we'll share this with you um, at the IGCS meeting and, and in the manuscript. Um, it, it appears that. Um, that this longer duration that patients are on treatment with a PARP inhibitor, that with respect to non-platinum agents, it really doesn't matter. So the outcomes in the non-platinum versus the platinum retreatment in with a prior exposure to PARP might, you know, be explained by shared mechanisms of drug resistance. And in the Aerial 4 trial, if you remember, the the analytical uh, pathway of the Aerial 4 trial was to first look at the patients that had a non-reversion mutation. And if there was positive, then they looked at the ITT. So that was an amendment to the analytical design of Arial 4. And what they showed was that if you had a reversion mutation while you were taking a PARP inhibitor, your likelihood of, of responding was, was, was extraordinarily low. So, so there may be, um, and this is be a benefit to and in whom they would not be a benefit to. And that's exactly what uh, Shannon and I have been, uh, been working on. Mm -hmm. Well, great. Actually, you know, we, we had sort of like an interruption of the, uh, 
of the in internet connection during that point. So this is a perfect setup for us to go to the IGCS and listen to that <laughs> tidbit of information that we actually lost during your, your missed connection. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, man. That's a bummer. I, I, for, for our audience, I think he did that on purpose. <laughs> and the reason that I'll share with you further uh, at the IGCS is blank. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I'm sorry. It, I don't know how much of that got through, but it, it, it basically what I'm saying is that the, you know, there may be shared resistance mechanisms and, and we may be able to uh, sort that out um, uh, with our ability to do real-time assessment of, uh, of tumor biology. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> next question I wanted to ask you is referring to the Rucaparib uh, uh, information and the data. Um, uh, is there any subgroup population where there may be a, a higher likelihood of a detrimental effect? Um, you know, obviously for, for many patients who are or have been on this, they may ask, well, does that apply to me? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the platinum sensitivity certainly is intriguing the, the way those subgroups look. That, that group with platinum resistant disease looks like they're getting the worst outcome. You know, we we already, I think the majority of us are using this more in a platinum sensitive setting. I don't know, Rob, I'd be interested to hear you. I, I rarely give this in platinum resistant disease. Um, for me, I'm looking for trials for those patients or, or some other alternative strategy, because I think the chance of them getting benefit is already so low. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I feel like that was the main one. We haven't seen all the data parsed, though. I mean, this is all just from the press release. I'm hopeful, Peter, that they will kind of give uh, tease out a little bit more clinical factors and features and such, because I, I think that will be really important, like line of therapy and all of that, you know, trying to see if we if it's like, yes, later lines of therapy platinum resistance so, you know the, the, the people we wouldn't expect to get as much benefit if that's driving this or not but we really don't yeah. have it you know in that press release right both aerial two and aerial four um showed that if you had a reversion mutation and got a PARP inhibitor you did you didn't do well at all and, and that goes along with the biology so so i think that um platinum resistance is a decent surrogate for lack of PARP sensitivity um it, it, like I said, it, it's a it's a functional biomarker potentially, um, and it, but it also may depend on how long patients have been if they're platinum sensitive, how long they've been on a PARP inhibitor, because they're at higher risk to induce one of these, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, resistance mechanisms uh, yeah. as an acquired event. So um, I think it raises the hypothesis more study is necessary, but it wouldn't it wouldn't dissuade me from using the analytical endpoints to guide therapy. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be using the analytical endpoints to make those decisions. And those are all based on proximal endpoints, such as progression-free survival and, uh, uh, and objective response for those that were looking for treatment. So uh, that's where we need to focus our, 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 um, our messaging to patients. Excellent. You know, anytime there is a, a press release or, you know, obviously a lot of uh, news and, and, and highlight on these points, um, it's not uncommon that patients get worried uh, with regards to, look, I was on that drug. Um, and, you know, this, this happened also with the Lactrol. Patients who had had a minimally invasive surgery, they were wondering, what are you going to do different for my follow-up? Um, do I need to have a different type of surveillance? Uh, if that question comes up uh, from, from one of your patients, what, what do you say? 
I mean, I think the answer is we don't know. And I, I feel like patients at this stage of the game, we're watching them really closely. <laughs> you know, I think it's very rare, you know, we're scanning these patients We're you know, we're, we're seeing them monthly, you know, for their labs and, and, and making sure that they're tolerating treatment well. So I don't know that there's anything additional we would do. Um, I, I do think though, it brings up a, a, a something that I've been kind of thinking on, you know, especially when we saw the solo two long-term data and saw the increase in AML and MDS, um, you know, it does make me wonder about stopping maintenance in the second line, right? So we, we know for frontline maintenance, there's pretty, you know, two years, three years, or the, the, the trials were pretty strict on their stopping times. And we saw, especially with solo one, we saw data long past when the PARP inhibitor was stopped, the patients seem to be getting benefits. So that's certainly reassuring. So I'm, I'm, I am thinking about that for the patients on maintenance in the second line, you know, should we really be treating to progression here? Or if you've got a patient that's been a few years, perhaps it's time to, to, to stop that therapy. So I feel like for me, that's the one thing that's come up is maybe not, you know, just continuing people on PARP forever. Yeah, that's that's a really excellent point. Um, and if you look at the solo one curves, and I, I've mentioned this before, that the you know you if you look at them carefully, you, you can see that where the PARP inhibitor is affecting the outcome between the experimental arm and the control arm. And about after about fifteen months, the event rate, even though the patients are on taking a PARP inhibitor versus the placebo, their their event rate is the same. So in other words, the number of actual progressions is basically the same, whether they're on treatment or not, the proportion is the same. So that, so to Shannon's point, we may reach a point where we're not really benefiting the patient by ad additional therapy. Um, whether or not that exists in the, in the, re in the recurrent setting, you know, is something that we'll have to uh, tease, tease out, but that's, but that's a, a very valid point. And, you know, again, another teaser at the ESMO meeting uh, coming up, we'll have the OS data or a seven-year uh, OS update on on uh, solo one, which I think will be quite exciting for people to see. Excellent. Um, and we've been focusing on Aero 4 and, um, and Vucaparib and, and then Shannon, you had also mentioned uh, Niraparib as also having um, uh, a bit of, of time in the news, uh, Zajula. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about what happened here and is it different from the story of Rucaparib? Yeah, I mean, I think when when this got reported, I think the FDA was asking for data from everybody now because they they you know we had the solo two data for a lap rib showing the the overall survival, but we hadn't seen kind of a um, new deep dive on the overall survival from the Nova study. So again, Nova being the second line maintenance, and and they broke it out because it is really two um, two studies uh, uh, separate. What we saw was. For patients with germline mutations, the, the overall survival seemed about the same. The, the hazard ratio was like 0.9. Mm -hmm. When they looked at the population with non-germline uh, mutations, it was a little bit more looking like the trend we see with Ariel 4, where the hazard ratio was like 1.1, right? Because this is a platinum sensitive group. The actual months, and you always have to be careful about this, but the point estimate for um, median overall survival was... 31 months for patients that got the neuraparib and 36 months for placebo. So you're starting to see a similar trend where, you know, are we favoring the placebo more in, in that group? Um, and then they did tease out even more. And again, this is for parsing data, parsing data, but um, they teased out the population that didn't have a germline mutation, but did was HRD positive. And, and don't forget with Nova, 
that includes patients with somatic BRCA mutations. They didn't, they didn't take those patients mm -hmm. out. So, you know, those patients obviously are, we've, we've shown over and over again, those patients act just like germline as far as from benefit from part, but regardless in the population with HRD positive, which would include somatic BRCA as well as just test positive patients. Again, it was 1.32, the hazard ratio. So uh, the trend really was that a similar trend of perhaps worse survival in that group that got a PARP inhibitor. So it, this is a little bit, they, and they, if you read the Dear Doctor letter, it's really interesting. Like they're, they're really trying to show what's wrong with these data. Like they're missing a lot of patients. Like they, they mm -hmm. basically are, they said they have like 15% missing data or 20%, mm -hmm. something like that, missing mm -hmm. data. And, and, you know, what we've heard is there's a lot of people, they don't have survival information for at all. So this is hard. We're looking at an incomplete data set, but you are kind of seeing a, a somewhat of a trend here. And Rob's right. You know, we really need to understand the mechanisms of this and, and see if it's really true. But but similar to what we're seeing in Solo One, it seems for for those patients with germline, that survival benefit is there, or or, or it's it's equivalent. Mm -hmm. um, but time without progression is important, right, to our patients. Time on you know when they are you know, not getting chemotherapy, not getting um, other yeah. treatments is, I think quality of life is really important here. So, so I, I do think all of those things need to be, to be considered, but that's what we know about the NOVA data. And, and two, two quick points here, just to maybe just to remind the, the uh, listeners, you know, all of these in, uh, for the NOVA trial, all of these 95% confidence intervals, which you remember represent the distribution of, pro of probability around a point estimate, they all cross one. They're all on the on the south side and north side of one. So you know, uh, and it, and it, and it does make a difference that they're analytical or not, because if we make them analytical, we actually have to have a sample size that's large enough to take care of the confounding factors. All of the things we've been talking about today are confounding factors that were uncontrolled. So it matters that they're analytical or not. It absolutely does. On the other hand, these point estimates are within range that it's just as likely that they could be uh, below one. Okay, so I just, we just have to remind people to be able to look at the, and this is probably to the point that you made about the other person who said people don't know how to read data, that, um, <laughs> that is probably just the fact that, you know, they have to look at not only the point estimate, but the confidence interval, and then look at this as, as whether or not this was analytical or not. Oh, great, excellent points. I just have a, a couple of additional questions. Uh, um, you know, obviously, uh, for patients that are being counseled for Olaparib or who are on Olaparib, um, you know, what, what do you say uh, to those patients when they say, well, I heard about these detrimental effect of PARP inhibitors. Um, should I really start on this? Uh, should I consider an alternative? What, what is your recommendation? Well, I think, you know, for upfront, we can feel really good about the, the numbers that we're seeing. And, and I think, you know, to Rob's point, giving these patients the part earlier before resistance mechanisms have developed is, is likely our best, um, kind of our best timing. So, so I think people can feel comfortable around that. We are still waiting on overall survival data from Solo One and from the up, other upfront trials. Um, but, you know, 
based on what we're seeing with the curves, and, and I'm, I'm excited to see the seven-year data that, that Rob mentioned from ESMO, for ESMO this year, but, you know, the curves have flattened out, right? So we, we haven't seen much difference from, you know, year three on, or even year, really year two on, you see li little events, but those patients seem to be staying on therapy you know, for a long time, we look like we've cured about 50% of patients, right? Most of us would think once our patient's out five years, it's a cure, right? Um, and so, you know, I feel comfortable giving patients a lap rib. And I, and I think that, you know, we just need to tell patients that these data are, 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 are not unclear that we're choosing this regimen because of this, this, these factors in her care, you know, these clinical factors, these molecular factors, and this is why, and that we'll monitor closely. And especially like I mentioned before with upfront, being able to stop, you know, knowing that we can stop after two years or three years, depending on what you're using is also, I think a reassurance that, you know, that it's not going to be that we're treating to progression. So. Mm -hmm. Great. And then one, one last question. I'll start with you, Shannon. Um, you know, for the clinicians, the gynecologic oncologists, as they have learned about this um, press releases and these concerns, um, you obviously you outline a, a really great description of the of sort of like the landscape of PARP inhibitors. And as as you conclude this podcast, what what do you say to those gynecologic oncologists that basically uh, look to you as the experts and say? all right, what do I do with this information? And, and do I do anything different than what I was doing yesterday? How do I incorporate this into my discussions with my patients? Yeah, I mean, I think from an upfront standpoint, you know, you stick to your indications, have your conversations with your patients and, and use the appropriate regimen. So, so for me, I mean, we are using PARP inhibitors for patients with BRCA mutations, for patients with HRD test positive. And I discuss PARP inhibitors for patients with HRD test negative because we know the test isn't perfect. And we all have patients in our, in our practice that either want to do something after completion of therapy or do not, or want to be done. And you can help guide those patients. But the bottom line is for patients with a biomarker, they should be getting a PARP inhibitor in the upfront setting. If you're, if you're moving into second line, third line in a patient that hasn't received a PARP, then I think we need to use the factors to make our decision, right? So what was the response to therapy? You know, what's the platinum free interval? You know, is there a role for bevacizumab? What are the biomarkers? And you know, make those decisions accordingly. I I do, I do, I always have, but I definitely have a pause around PARP for all in the second and line and beyond. I think maybe that isn't our best choice anymore. I but at the same time, if a patient hasn't had PARP inhibitor, gosh, I want to give her a chance to, to potentially be one of those patients that benefits. So for me, frontline is very clear, second line start using your, your clinical and your molecular biomarkers to make your decisions. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that to your point, Pedro, you know, um, we're grateful to have the, the, this opportunity to educate because really it's about, you know, physician and patient education. So, you know, what do you do differently? You continue to amass the data, critically review the literature, learn as much as you can, provide the most you know, appropriate answers for your patients. So this is, this is part of that story. And, and again, like I said, I'm, we're so grateful that you've taken you know, time to, to bring a spotlight on this issue uh, in a way that uh, we, you know, provides us an opportunity to kind of explain with more detail than you can get out of a soundbite at a press release. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Well, thank you both so, so much. It's always such a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, and I learned so much uh, after uh, having these discussions with, with both of you. And again, honestly, congratulations for all the work that both of you have done. Um, again, we look forward to hopefully seeing everybody at the uh, IGCS uh, meeting as well. So uh, I uh, congratulate you again for uh, the, the, the massive contribution to G1 Oncology and our patient care. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much.